everyone, and Happy New Year. Welcome back to FinTech for the People. I'm Ami Parbu, Managing Partner of Axion Venture Lab, and I'm excited to continue this exclusive season. As an early stage investor in fintech startups, Axion Venture Lab has spent the last decade investing in over 60 companies across Africa, Latin America, Asia, and the US. And we believe in the power of fintech to reach those who have been left behind. If you're tuning in for the first time, Fintech for the People brings you the stories behind the work we do and the people who are driving truly inclusive fintech innovation in every corner of the world. In this special season, we've been sharing discussions that happened during our Fintech for Inclusion Global Summit late last year. The summit brought together over 250 people in the inclusive fintech community, and it was an incredible space to share what we all are seeing and working on across the globe. We wanted to share some of those learnings and conversations with you all. Today's discussion was an engaging panel on an important topic many of us in inclusive fintech are thinking more about, how financial solutions can help combat and mitigate climate risk for the most vulnerable, particularly smallholder farmers. Thank you to my colleague, Mayada Elzogbi, Managing Director of the Center for Financial Inclusion for moderating this panel. She was joined by a fantastic group. So thanks to Nick Hughes of 4R Digital, Ricardo Salinas of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, Yoga Anandito of Semai, and Maurice Sheepins of FMO. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Wonderful to have you guys join today's session. So as you can see, this session is called Agricultural Finance as a Tool to Combat and Mitigate climate risks. Um, so we have a phenomenal panel, which I'll have them introduce themselves in just a minute. But I, I don't think I need to make the case for why this matters, for why climate risks matter for smallholder farmers, for agriculture in general. But I think we can all, we all know that, you know, climate change affects low-income people much more so than that it affects, you know, uh, those who created the, the problem we're facing. One data point that I just wanted to share is that the poorest 50% of people produce only 1% of global emissions, but obviously are much, much more at risk for how climate change affects them. And why agriculture matters more to everybody is, that of course, it affects the food supply. So we care about the agricultural system adapting and you know, evolving to enable kind of the world to, to eat in the future. So we need, we need farmers to adapt to kind of the new, the new realities of this world. So today, I, you know, we have, this, we have two, two fintechs who are very much getting involved in this topic in, in different ways. Uh, and then we have two investors who are, have a portfolio of investee companies involved in agriculture and trying to address climate impacts. I'm going to let them each introduce themselves. Why don't we start... To my left, with Nick Hughes, who is a, a fintech founder. Yep, great. Hello, good morning. Yeah, you won't have heard of my company for our digital, we're a new company, but my background is digital finance, M-Pesa and then M-Copa. So we're, we're, doing, um, we're doing some work with some support from FCDO and FSD Africa to look at how we can use digital tools and digital payments especially to get finance from carbon credit sales all the way down to smallholder farmers and other clean projects on the ground. Now, at the moment, those of you are familiar with the carbon market, it's a lovely economic idea, but it doesn't actually work. It's broken. I, I speak from experience. We took MCOPA, my previous business, through the gold standard verification. We sold our credits to Microsoft. It took us two years, cost us about $180,000. I mean, that's crazy. We only did it because MCOPA is quite big. That's, and it just opened my eyes to there's got to be a better way 
to allow smaller projects into that climate finance market and get most of the money from carbon credit sales down to the smallholders. At the moment, somewhere between 40 and 60% of sales, proceeds from sales, go out to middlemen and auditors and standards. I can see some nodding heads. I think some of you may have experienced trying to go through these verification routes at the moment. It's just broken, and it's a sort of an old world model. We think we can use remote monitoring of digital activity on the ground. We can couple it up with micropayments. So I genuinely know that farmers planted 100 trees. I can monitor the growth of those trees. I can trigger small payments to reward that farmer for taking climate positive action, i.e. locking up carbon in, in, in trees. So uh, I'm here for the day. If someone wants to come have a look at this platform, I'm very happy to share it. But we're, we're quite excited that it's, uh, we, we need, it, it, we're addressing a massive need in, in the marketplace. Thank you, Nick. We'll have a lot more uh, engagement on the platform and, uh, and other topics. I'll go to my right. Ricardo Salinas. I'm an investment officer with the International Development Finance Corporation. The DFC, we are the U.S. government's development finance institution, and our mandate really is to partner with the private sector in catalyzing investment, moving capital towards solutions to some of the more intractable problems uh, in the developing world. I also have a role as the a portfolio manager for the Portfolio for Impact and Innovation, which is our window for engaging growth stage, high impact, highly scalable opportunities. Uh, some of those companies are, are represented in our, uh, from our portfolio are represented here. And I think just from the lens of how DFC looks at the topic of the panel today, there's several intersecting themes. Um, the first, I think food security is, is a major theme for, for DFC. To that point, we've committed to mobilizing a billion dollars of capital over the next five years as part of our roadmap to impact. We also have our 2X Challenge Initiative, which is on gender equity. And, and shorthand, I think a lot of folks here are aware of the disproportionate impacts on women in climate impacts and, and where they uh, exist in vulnerable populations and, and what those impacts can look like. And then lastly, on the climate finance front. So climate finance is of paramount importance to DFC and the U.S. government. We're part of a whole government initiative uh, to, to try to funnel more capital to climate finance solutions. And to that end, starting this year, DFC is, is mandated to commit one out of every three transactions to climate finance. Uh, but we, what we still recognize is there's a gap between climate mitigation and climate adaptation. And there's many statistics, I'm sure folks are, are familiar, but one I'll cite from uh, the recent Convergence Blended Finance Report is that only 7% of capital in climate finance went to climate adaptation. And of that, 2% was from the private sector. So there's a significant gap there. But on that front, you know, we're still very excited to, to try to rise to that challenge. Um, upcoming is COP27. And in the coming weeks, stay tuned potentially for more opportunities and for DFC to, uh, to try to address climate adaptation and working with, with the private sector. Fabulous. Next, Maurice. It's a pleasure to be on this panel. My name is Maurice. I work for FMO, the Dutch Development Bank. I started off my career in the inclusive finance space, a space that many of you are familiar with microfinance, small business banks. And over time, I gravitated more and more towards rural areas and finding out that urban areas is already a challenge, but relatively easy to address if you compare to rural areas, which faces far more challenges. Over time, I've been active in supporting large-scale agricultural uh, transactions that did more and more deals on the farmer financing side, looking for solutions that help smallholder farmers. Basically, traveling the world, I noticed that a lot of these pilots, often very pilots, not often really projects themselves yet, were very impactful from a social point of view, but the financial side was always a challenge. Too costly, 
difficult to run, high OPEX, difficult to work and make it actually a commercial viable uh, business uh, proposition. And then technology came about. Technology really allows us to come up with solutions that are helping to reduce these costs, expand our reach in these rural areas. And I'm not talking about high tech, but I'm talking more about tech-enabled type of models. We learned that these tech-enabled models often came from small companies, young companies, entrepreneurs with aspiring ideas, but still loss-making, early days, unproven business cases. So we set up the Ventures Program as FMO. And the Ventures Program allows us to make investments directly in early-stage companies across fintech, off-grid energy, and agri-tech. Now, obviously, the world is not as black and white as fintech here and agri-tech there. Yeah? There's always an intersection between these plays. So we like to look at embedded finance, basically. What kind of solutions can we come up with for farmers that include finance, that includes other kinds of uh, services like knowledge transfer or maybe inputs and seeds, uh, what have you. What is also important, and of course the topic of today's panel, is about climate change. We, uh, as you mentioned earlier, most vulnerable people are ones in emerging markets in rural areas. So how can we help them with solutions that are both climate mitigation, but also climate adaptation? So solutions that look at embedded finance, a wide range of services, while taking into account climatic changes, that's at the forefront of our activities, and very much something I would like to elude on later during this panel. Perfect. I think uh, next we have Yoga, who has a, a fintech in Indonesia. Thanks for having me here. Uh, my name is Yoga Anindito. I work on a company uh, called Samai. So Samai is a, uh, we started out as a B2B platform for agri-inputs, as in seeds, fertilizers, pesticides, and everything. Um, we aim to digitize uh, the whole supply chain in Indonesia because, as uh, you know, probably some of you already know, in Indonesia, Indonesia is a big agricultural market. We are, the agriculture sector is there, $100 billion worth. So it's a huge market. But then again, because there's just so many people and so traditional, the market is very segmented. You know, fertilizer prices, for example, uh, on a farmer level is very high. And yeah, that's why this is due to so many middlemen in between. Why do we have so many middlemen? It's because uh, there's just no, uh, there's, there's been no technology to tackle that. You know, you can't do business traditionally with, you know, for example, 1,000 customers, right? Whereas us, and I, we started in August last year, and up until now, we can serve uh, up to 5,000 MSMEs in just one province. So we've been able to uh, prove that we can cut the prices on the farmer level and then uh, help the farmers get more uh, cheaper materials for their farms. And then also later on, we are also looking to go toward, you know, getting more, you know, buying from farmers directly so that we can, you know, market access to the farmers that we're, we're going. And then also we aim to give some sort of financing options to farmers and MSMEs because we, we work with MSMEs, not farmers directly because it's just too much dealing with farmers. It's a logic, logistics nightmare. Uh, but we are working with MSMEs and then help the MSMEs to, you know, help the farmers, you know. So this is our approach. Also embedded financing, as uh, Maurice uh, mentioned, is, you know, I think it's the, way, uh, it's the way to go in this current market. And it has proven to be very effective and farmers like it. Thank you. I should introduce myself and I forgot to do that. So my name, <laughs> my name is Mayara El-Zagbi and I'm uh, the managing director of the Center for Financial Inclusion, which is the think tank arm of Axion. So we wanted to ask you guys a question. How confident are you that fintechs can help address the pain points of smallholders, or we can broaden it out to farmers in general, caused by climate change. 
would love to get your reactions. Should we start with you, Nick? Yeah, sure. I'm an optimist. I think if you look at the tools we've now got to, well, there are three things in my, in my mind that, that let me step into building a, uh, the, the carbon value exchange platform we're working on. First of all, we know how to monitor things remotely at very low cost. We've got satellite imagery, we've got machine-to-machine technology, we've got IoT, Internet of Things, all sorts of proprietary networks. So if somebody does something on the ground virtually anywhere in the world, we can observe it and monitor it and capture the data. That's the first step. I can see something happening on the ground remotely and at quite low cost. Secondly, we've got digital payments, of course. We've all spent the last 15, 20 years building this. We know how to, I know how to move $10 down to an M-Pesa account, put 10,000 shillings in an account, and I can do that at very low cost. So I've got remote monitoring ability. I've got the ability to move small amounts of money around. And then in the last couple of years, we've seen this carbon market mature. Many, many organizations are now setting net zero commitments. Those net zero commitments are out there at 2035, 2040, following the, the whole IPC. So we're actually at COP27 next week. We're starting to see the rules for these carbon markets firm up. Now, you put all of that together, I think we've got an opportunity to, 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 to find a much more equitable way to get buyers of carbon credits, you know, the big corporations in the world, but just also the medium-sized businesses, we can take their money because they're committing money into the voluntary markets to hit their net zero targets. We can get that money down to clean projects on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia, the global south generally. And we know how to do that. So we've got all the bits of the jigsaw. So I am an optimist, of course, that, you know, other things get in the way, <laughs> politics, uh, humans, uh, all this sort of stuff. But, but look, I, I am an optimist and I think we've got some really exciting opportunities in front of us. So, but we've got to step in, you know, we, we have to make these things happen. Anybody else want to comment? Maybe less enthusiastic about this? <laughs> I'm enthusiastic, but I just want to put on the devil's advocate hat yeah. here. I think it's extremely important that it's the right way of financing, right? Mm -hmm. If it is going to be financing for farmers and they just do the way things have been doing for centuries, it's not going to work, right? We have to face the realities. Climate is changing and we have to be mindful of climate changes and the development of new challenges that are to be confronted with these farmers. So... The finance that is going to be made available should result in climate resilience, making resilient farmers. If that's not the case, we shall not, we shall not do it. So just try to be a bit more so you're, nuanced here. You're, you're already shifting to this the idea of results, right? So uh, achieving results. And that was actually my next question. And I was going to start with the fintechs and yoga. I'm going to start with you next, which is, you know, you, you've been operating now for, I think, over a year. And I'd love to hear more about what you're seeing on the ground in terms of results with the farmers uh, and anything else you want to highlight about your model? Yeah, so basically I'm going to start with something very simple. So farmers, smallholder farmers, they don't have money. They don't have money to think about what they eat next month. You know, their buffer is only like probably, you know, maximum a week. So that's how bad it is, you know, because I used to be a, a, you know, a farmer myself, you know, not that kind of poor farmer, but even as a middle income farmer, so to say, you know, I don't have that much money, you know. Yeah, I, I guess by getting uh, cheaper stuff and then, you know, flexibility of payment, you know, we, we're not even talking about, uh, we, we're not even offering, you know, pay later or a BNPL, whatever it is, uh, credit to farmers yet. But just by offering farmers, uh, you know, just slightly point something percent cheaper stuff, they will like it. I mean, for, for them, it's a blessing, you know. Well, not to mention if you can give them something more like a pay later or anything. I mean, definitely, definitely, uh, if you want farmers to think about uh, sustainability, the environment, you know, tr trying to get them to use more organ organic stuff, 
uh, try to get them to uh, use better GAP, good agricultural practice and everything. Definitely, we, ne- we need to support them with some kind of a financial, you know, uh, flexibility, right? So, yeah, I guess it is also very important. To so do you them. offer specific incentives to get that kind of behavior change? Do you offer specific incentives to the, to the, the businesses and then in turn the, the farmers? No, I have not really. Not yet. I have not really, but, well, demands are there, you know. Yeah. They're looking for it. But just by giving them exactly, you know, timely service, you know, just, you know, you can show empathy or whatever, but you, you can just uh, give them a better pricing and then faster delivery to their uh, service, you know. It's a lot for these farmers because… So you're, you're starting off with really information as the key kind of… Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, right. To get to the um, financing part, yeah. Yeah, and Nick, I think you're hoping to actually give them money in their hands. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know you're not yet at the kind of yeah, uh, we're implementation in, stage. Yeah, that's right. We're in, in, in pilot phase now. Um, uh, when we think about, back again to uh, net zero goals, 2035, 2040, we've got a th- that, that's, a, that's a, a goal which is far enough away for us to start planning quite sophisticated financial products. So if, if I'm a smallholder farm and I, I plant 100 trees, the, the, we're going to try and monetize the future value of that carbon lockup over 15 years. So you've got a, a timeline on the buy side of that platform, 15 years, which is good. They can make a commitment now at a certain price today, sort of hedge their risk so they're not scrabbling around buying credits in 2030 when the carbon price might be much higher. All the pundits are saying it's going to be much higher. But we can think smartly about how we how we package that delivery down to the smallholder farmer who's who's got to protect those trees. We've got to make sure that the, the above-ground biomass is, is locking up. But we can front-load some cash. I think we can also think about giving them credit for agri-inputs to their farm. Maybe it comes in the form of fertilizers or seeds or you know, even training. And that can all be part of the deal. We, we've, we've seen this happening in, in other, you know, other, other use cases. We know how to structure good financial products for farmers. Let's, let's do it on a 15-year time frame. And um, yeah, again, I'm, I'm sort of massively over, oversimplifying what is a very complex <laughs> situation, but, but I think we can do it. I, I, you know, can I you talk specifics, like which markets are you looking at? And yes. do you already have you yeah. know, companies that are yeah, sure. making commitments? Yeah, so look, I'm a big believer in the power of demonstration. If we thought too hard about M-Pesa you know, before we launched it, we'd have never done it. Because you, you, ju- you just have to get out with something. And as some of you know the history of M-Pesa. We actually built the wrong thing. We, we built a loan repayment system looked at people using it and so actually it's P2P, let's turn all of that complexity off and launch it, send money home is, was, the, right. was the start. So we have to do the same thing here. We have to step in, build a demonstration version, mm-hmm. and then we'll learn how to do this better over time and we can layer in more sophistication as, as, as we get into it. But we're, yeah, we're right at the MVP stage. So we're working with an energy company in the UK called Octopus Energy. We're working with four or five projects on the ground in Africa. And we're just building the demo version now. We're demoing. We're actually taking it to COP27 to show people there. An expected launch date? Uh, well, we're going to go into a live money, real data in Q1. And then we, we'll probably try and get live within six months. Okay, fabulous. So our two investors, maybe we start with you. Tell us a little bit more about the kinds of investments you're making, the kinds of results you're seeing, and anything else you'd like to share about your portfolio. Yeah, to sort of freestyle on the question a bit and getting back to outcomes, I think that's it's a very important framing for us and the way that we look at solutions in, in this space and in general across our portfolio for impact when there is a financial service involved, recognizing that financial services 
are conduits for some sort of other financial activity and, and what commercial activity is being enabled by that. Is that valuable to the end user? And is there more value being created from that individual for that individual than to the financial service provider itself? And I think sometimes that gets lost in the discussion and having sort of a customer-centric credit to you know, the work of, of many folks, but um, one I'm a fan of that's present 60 decibels and really amplifying customer voice. So we definitely look at opportunities through that lens and then also through the lens of how are these companies adapting to some really complex market structures, issues that we're constantly battling against that are more structural in nature and in the fact that smallholder farmers are small, that they're very diffuse, they're, they're all really distributed. So scalability is a big question. And I think two examples of, of both of those, there, there were two great examples on the last panel with Kula and Apollo that I think integrated that. But from the DFC portfolio, we funded a blended finance vehicle, um, the Insure Resilience Fund, managed by Blue Orchard. We're using debt and equity to try to provide climate insurance in the value chain, working with partners, microfinance institutions, the Apollos of the world as well, in trying to provide climate insurance sort of packaged into the customer journey. Uh, the other example would be Dahat, which I think is very similar to the work that you're doing. They're uh, looking at a, an end-to-end solution for smallholder farmers, providing access to high-quality agriculture inputs, uh, which I think also involves a climate lens. They are also providing advice, and they are expanding to other categories uh, as well with, with financing and insurance in India. So those are, I think, two illustrative examples of kind of how how we've uh, brought that to fore. And, and uh, there's definitely others, uh, but I'll leave it at that. That's great. And then, Maurice, you, know, you started talking about how a lot of the ag programs that you saw were not sustainable. Maybe you can, you know, build on what you started and say what, what you're doing now, what are the kinds of results you're seeing, both in terms of the kind of results and reach to farmers, and then also in terms of the, the financial side. Be curious whether you're seeing some um, improved outcomes from a, you know, business model side. Yeah, perfect, we'll do so. Maybe to provide some context first, Agritech is a relatively new space right? in the larger venture space. A decade ago, maybe less than 3 billion was invested globally. It has increased substantially, but still less than 50 billion. Globally, in the venture space, that's a niche market. Mm-hmm. If you then look into this money being invested, mm-hmm. it's mostly in the European Union, it's in the US, and it's mostly downstream, so focus on consumers. Nothing to do with farmers, nothing to do with climate. Mm-hmm. So what we do as FMO, we try to look at the upstream side, more farmer-centric, and looking at solutions, obviously, in emerging markets. I think one of the great examples of a company, indeed, is actually the hat. We'd like to build on this example, because it's a digital marketplace. So what are the key challenges most farmers face? It's access to input, it's access to knowledge, it's linkages to markets, and it's about finance, access to finance. And having a digital marketplace out there and they reach about 1.3 million farmers in India, talking about numbers. Mm. Northern India started off in Bihar, which is one of the poorest states within the larger India let's say, subcontinent, if you may call it like that. And they are offering all kinds of services that are really nicely fitting in our climate agenda. It's about advice. What kind of crops should you cultivate, given the local context, given your soil, given the climatic changes that you will be facing? It's also about access to the right quality of inputs, right? You can talk about seeds and all kinds of other biostimulants and fertilizers, but you need to have access to good quality. That's what they offer. And then you need to also provide them with the markets because if you as a small farmer, little purchasing power, are going to be investing in your land, you need to be certain that you can actually sell it for a premium because otherwise it's going to be a poverty trap for the farmer, right? 
you extend loans, but they will not be benefiting from it. So very important to also look at the market side. So on the finance side, this is a new pilot, right? So we looked at with uh, as FMO, we support the HAT in a pilot in establishing a loan program. So about 500 farms received a loan, up to $180 per farmers. And we talk about smallholders, say two, between two and five acres. And we've just got the outcome. And that's quite interesting because the outcome shows that firstly, farmers, of course, they increase the purchasing power. That means they get more access to inputs. It's not just fertilizer they buy. Mm -hmm. With the advice of the HAT, they just not look at NPKs, which is the macronutrients, but they're also looking at micronutrients specific for their plot. What is needed to grow better quality and with a higher yield type of crops. They also saw, or we also saw, that there was a difference in the crop mix. So instead of just buying maize or wheat, which is a more cheaper, say, uh, seeds, they started to invest in potatoes, which is a higher value crop. Very exciting to see. And then of lastly, the price realization, because of better quality food, higher yields and higher margin crops, they were able to almost double their income in a single season. And those are results that we believe are very amazing, right? And it builds to climate adaption because you get seeds that are adapted to the new environment maybe with a certain coating so that you can have drought-resistant seeds, for example. We have biostimulants that really look at specific threats yeah, from pests, for example. But it's also mitigation because it's training in regenerative agriculture, for example. Mm -hmm. How to use the environment more to your benefit as a farmer, living in harmony with the environment. But I think those are examples of an intervention with a partner like the HAT that shows really promising results. And we have similar clients. We have Farmerline in West Africa. They work with like 75,000 farmers. Waco is another partner of FMO, over 100,000 farmers in the southern part of India, training them with pilot farms about you know, applying all kinds of regenerative agricultural practices. It's really not difficult, but it is new to a lot of farmers because they're basically doing what their father did or their parents did and their grandparents. It's showing new techniques and really help them improve their resilience overall. And lastly, I would just say just on the equipment side, it's not just advice and input, but a lot of farmers in Africa, for example, are still cultivating on a rain-fed uh, approach. It's very difficult, and particularly with the new erratic rain patterns, you're vulnerable. So if we can help them with, for example, solar power uh, water pumps that are then linked to a drip irrigation system, you can really increase their income and build resilience. You cannot pay that, because you mentioned earlier, farmers are not rich. So a $1,000 unit is too expensive. So if you then come with a PECO structure, for example, and you have to be paid in, let's say, 24, 36 months, then suddenly it becomes accessible to these farmers. So these are the types of innovations that we like to support. No, it's wonderful. Uh, Ricardo, did you want to jump in? Yeah, no, the only thing that I would just add to just accentuate is, uh, and, and I think going back to the example from the panel discussed before, is that all of these solutions, you know, focused on the outcome of driving income, improved livelihoods, and how we actually sort of get to measure that. Um, so it's not just the design and the intricacy and the full stack of services and pulling all these things together, which is incredibly complex. It's actually seeing, is that in the end, increasing farmers' income and increasing their resilience? And it's also, you know, uh, comes back to the customer voice. Do they perceive that value? Are they recognizing that? Or are there other ways to kind of tweak as, as we go? So sometimes, you know, it's a question of innovating and, and introducing new solutions versus the actual, you know, low-hanging fruit, what's going to make the most difference uh, in the smallholder farmer's perspective? So just a follow-up to both of you. So you're finding interesting innovations, you're seeing real results. What's Why not scale? Is there enough pipeline of these kinds of innovations? What's, can you talk a little bit more about that? 
think uh, our CEO, Michael Jongenil, earlier mentioned the market creation strategy of FMO, because we do see there are interesting solutions out there, but we still believe that our, the number of bankable projects is relatively limited. Mm -hmm. So we try to support it in multiple ways. And with our agri-tech strategy, for example, we have teamed up with uh, Endeavor. Endeavor is an accelerator uh, that's operating across the world. And together with Endeavor, we set up a program to accelerate specifically companies in Africa that are focusing on agri-tech, helping them in a 12-month period improve simple things as finding, but very important things, HR, marketing, pitching, valuation. So those are programs that we support as FMO and that will hopefully help drive the creation of new bankable projects and help them scale as well. Yeah, I mean, going back to the question about optimism, I'm definitely in, in the category of optimist, but I also would just want to you know, address the elephant in the room that there's a, a, sh a massive shift in the global market and in terms of liquidity and the cost of capital, uh, liquidity dropping significantly, cost of capital going up. Um, so while I have a lot of faith in these solutions, yeah, there, there aren't a ton of bankable, scalable projects available. We're still kind of early innings, but we're sort of in a tough environment now where uh, I don't know if it's necessarily hit us all yet. Um, maybe it has, or maybe people aren't talking about it, but there's definitely an increased role for more blended finance, uh, a, a higher risk appetite, uh, longer-term patient capital from actors like FMO, DFC, um, and I think we're starting. We're making you know all of the work that, that FMO is doing in terms of creating innovations, the, the FMO ventures, all the support that you're providing these entities on the DFC side. You know, looking at this this climate mandate, introducing programs like the Portfolio for Impact, and really scaling that in recent years. But we need to find other ways to really rise to the challenge because the size of the challenge is so significant, and yet the private sector has not yet caught up. And so it's going to be much more difficult in the, in the coming time. Yeah, I'm just wondering, uh, Yoga and Nick, you know, you guys have solutions. You know, what, are, what support are you getting? Are you getting the right kind of support? And in terms of the capital that you need, are you finding that? And what are the challenges, challenges you're experiencing? A new question that I just added. <laughs> <laughs> Yoga, you want to... We've been to a lot of talks with the investors. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, everybody's looking into this uh, embedded finance thing, you know. And then also, uh, what we need to also understand is that uh, working with farmers, they require a lot of hand-holding, you know. So, what we uh, do basically is to... Um, we digitize the agents, like uh, maybe if you... Uh, we're in the previous uh, session with uh, Pula, for example, which, well, they're digitizing the agents, right? We also do that, and that's proven to be very, very uh, effective. Mm -hmm. So it's just uh, in agri, it all takes time, you know. What I'm trying to say is that um, it takes time, but it's possible because we know that in Indonesia, also a friend of mine is a CEO of um, uh, a fishery startup. It started out in like 2013 or 2014 when it hasn't been able to, we weren't able to raise, you know, fund for what, five years, six years. And then when they did, they scaled up to like now a, uh, a unicorn worth more than $1 billion and they are profitable. You know, what's their approach? It's one farmer at a time, one farmer at a time. What are they digitizing? You know, they're digitizing the agents. They're digitizing how the aggregators, you know, here's the key. You have to have the aggregators, you know. The aggregators have to be uh, digitized and streamlined so that they work more efficiently, you know. I think, in a way, they work exactly like uh, the hat, although in a, albeit in a different, uh, slightly different sector, yeah. But so selling inputs and then off-taking from uh, the fish farmers and then giving advisories and all. So closed loop. But 
the key is in the uh, you know digitizing uh, the agents. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add a little. It's always that the hard bit is the first couple of years to get out the door, and that's why we've been fortunate enough to get a little bit of funding from FCDO to prove this platform could work. But the scale will come when I'm in the, in the carbon markets. Are unusual in that we've got corporations around the world setting these goals, and they've got money to spend. We've got lots and lots of, of organisations on the ground do it already already in touch with the smallholder farmers, or selling cooks to clean cook stoves, or putting pay-as-you-go irrigation in. We can couple with organisations that have already got presence on the ground. So we're we're really just building the bit in the middle. We're joining up those corporations with those with those clean projects on the ground. But you still somebody's got to be brave enough to step in and build that and show that we can do it a different way. And you know, and, and we've got we've got seed funding now. But I, you know, I do I do worry. You know, what what will happen? And I've, I've seen as many times as as we as we were trying to get MCOPA off the ground. You sort of go in and people say to you, well. What are you? Are you a tech business? Are you an energy business? Are you a digital player? And unless you've got a really nice answer for them, you tend to see them go, oh, no, you're not in my mandate. My mandate is, right. is digital technology. And if you're saying, well, look, I'm using digital technology to solve a massive problem, that's not, I think we're getting better at it uh, globally, the, the royal we. But, but, <laughs> but, I, but I, I still think we've got, to, we've got to try and think more broadly about how technology can, can deliver end results. Right. And I, some great examples here. And, and then be brave enough to, to get out there and, and it, not be frightened of failure as well. Because it, you know, often I think some of the impact world probably have a sort of a, they're more cautious of failure than the sort of hardcore VCs. Yeah, yeah so I'm, kind of, I'm hearing a little bit of a, call to action for the investors <laughs> to also kind of understand this this business. And I obviously you guys have been doing it for a while. Maybe you're the exception, not the rule. So fintechs are well positioned to track the effects of their investments on smallholders, climate mitigation, resilience, and adaptation results. Do you agree with this? What do you think? <laughs> and shall we start with you, Yoga? Because you you're the kind of say the closest to the farmers. I believe that we need uh, an aggregator, as you said before. Yeah, like you know, someone who's actually uh, giving the embedded financing or something like that, directly dealing with the farmers. You know, as I mentioned before, farmers don't have money to think of all of these things, right? So, I don't know, maybe some carbon economy and all, but and this all too complicated for the for the farmers at least. So. And you need someone in the middle who's smart enough to think about carbon capture or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, but. Oh yeah, in terms of financing, yeah, this is where the fintech play should come in because, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just want to share a little bit of my story, you know, because I usually go travel to the field to uh, to the meet my field guys in Central Java, and then as you fly over, you know, with the plane from Central Java to Jakarta, and you see a lot of, especially during the dry season, you know, where post harvest everybody is burning the leftover of the rice, you know. You can't do anything about it, right? I mean, well, some agri-expert would just say, you know, why don't you, you know, make a make a fertilizer out of it, you know, ferment it or anything like that. But the logistics of doing that, you know, it's a lot, right? So this is where the fintech play or maybe people like us or anyone else, you know, should come in, you know, maybe if you want to tackle climate change, then we should collaborate with the, um, with the NGOs or the other fintech companies and then let's do... You know, let's uh, reduce this. Uh, you know, this is a real, real problem. If you fly over the plane, it's all smoke. You know, coming from the the paddy fields. You know, this is concerning for me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's my take, at least. Yeah. That's great. So, and then Nick, I think 
your model, you actually can get the kind of data. Yeah. But again, I'm, uh, you know, at risk of oversimplifying, but it is possible now to monitor things remotely. It's a really good point about complexity. A cost is sort of trending down on connectivity. You know, Elon Musk has his way with his low orbit satellites. All you know, the networks, the networks are there. They're getting cheaper. They're getting better quality. But we have to be careful about the complexity thing because that, that's a really good point. And so I do get a bit frustrated in the in the climate space and the carbon markets where people are starting to introduce. Oh, we're going to put it all on the chain. We're going to tokenize it. We're going to create a little crypto. That's nonsense. I mean, it's already a hard place. Why are we trying to? build unnecessary digital technology that nobody can really give you a very good answer why you need to tokenize something on a fully distributed chain. Sorry for any blockchain enthusiasts. <laughs> in the but there, there are, there are, of course, you need good digital engineering. You, you need good ledgers. You need to find a very simple way of collecting that data in. But we can do that. And we don't need to use anything other than digital fiat currencies. We, you know, we don't need to create new currencies. So I think there's risk of it. We all get excited about technology. And we're going to pile into this, this Super complex stuff, but I, I think that's a really good point. Keep it simple. Do what we can remotely without too much human interaction. But you're still always going to need people on the ground, going out, educating, gathering some some sort of good old fashioned analog data for sure. I don't I don't think, see the end of that quickly. But I think there's a blend. You know, there's something we can use the tech, but still use presence of people on the ground, agents or trainers or that's great. you know. That's great. So, Maurice, you know, in the in the example that you gave and the actual results that you captured, how did you capture that? Like, what what did the fintech report uh, on that data, or did you guys support them? Could you talk a little bit more? And that's a good question. Actually, we we also used uh, the service of TechnoServe okay. to help them actually with the establishment of the pilot, looking at different structures of the loan. You want to make sure then that the loan repayment cycle is actually in alignment with the type of crops that they are uh, cultivating. So we use a, a third party. Mm-hmm. Of course, over time, we need to come up with solutions that are integrated in the company's own MIS systems, right? Mm-hmm. But I really want to underline the fact that it's very complicated to track farms. It's not just simply registration of a farmer one. It's right. about where is his plot, the exact size of the plot. What is he doing? What kind of inputs are they using? So that's far more let's say, complex than people might tend to think. Then to, to your point, actually, what are you registrating? Is it just yield mm-hmm. and maybe market price? Are you also looking at what is what kind of uh, farmland is on a sustainable land management? Are you looking at water saved? Are you looking at food wastage or food losses prevented? Mm-hmm. Are you looking at avoided GHGs? Mm-hmm. And if you start going into these questions, it becomes quite easily rather complex. Right. And, and the only thing, I mean, there's been so many great points on this. And the only thing I would say, again, just from what we talked about before, is, you know, a lot of this is outputs. And we also still have to focus on outcomes. And I think that looking at the customer perspective is a key part, portion of that. So we, we very highly value that perspective as well. Are the uh, farmers you know, feeling the resilience improvement? Are they feeling benefits from this? And I think that's actually also a proxy for what's commercially scalable and sustainable, because if they don't value it, then you know, you're kind of swimming upstream the entire way. But just to sort of tack that on as well. No, that's great. So you've kind of moved into, we're going to close out the, the session now. And I just wanted you know one kind of comment or ask that you have to any stakeholder, and I think you've already started with, you know, the government taking more of a lead in some of this, but I don't know if you have another ask that you want to share or, and then, then we'll just go down the line and each one of you, you know, just a closing comment about what it is that you want others to know or want others to do. 
Well, I, I just stated that the government plays a very important role in this. So for now in Indonesia, if you ask about data uh, transparency, the government doesn't even have data. So we have more data than the government. I mean, to say, I mean, to be blatant. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they have the power to, you know, make, uh, give subsidies and then uh, make government prog- programs or uh, anything like that. So I think my ask would be, for the investors here or uh, government agencies and everyone, we need to collaborate in a systematic manner, you know, with the startups, with the fintechs, with the agritechs, with everyone. And we need to look into uh, what the government has to say about this. And then do we make a solution that makes everyone happy? Not just the startups, not just the fintechs, not just the, the investors, but also the government and the farmers. Don't forget the farmers, yeah. Yeah, I think on the one hand, we have very smart people that come up with uh, new ideas. We have people that are willing to invest in these companies. But a crucial point that's often missing is, in particular with digital marketplaces, is working capital. Mm-hmm. So early stage companies facing it very difficult or having it very uh, difficult to get access to local currency often, working capital so that they can actually procure the inputs that they want to push on to the farmers. I think if someone can come up with a good solution for affordable local currency working capital facilities for these marketplaces, for example, or these other agri-tech types of innovations, I think that would be a game changer. Ricardo? That was a great answer. <laughs> I could tweak my answer a little bit. Maybe something just to, to re-emphasize again. I, I think that having the Lodestar really be on customer voice and what's actually happening at the unit level is really key because I think a lot of the other questions kind of fall apart if that relationship isn't established. So having more, you know, third-party evaluators, more value in the industry on customer voice as not just the basis for measuring the impact, but also for the commercial case, for the case for scalability, for making the opportunities more investable to a greater range of stakeholders is is really important. So I'll just re-emphasize that. Fabulous. Nick? Yeah, I think it's a really good challenge on the need for collaboration. Just as a general point, look at how the world's responded when COVID appeared and the vaccinations were, we shortened the development time for vaccinations from decades to to literally to months. So we can do these things. You know, there's more and more evidence that we don't have a lot. You know, the rate at which climate change is is happening is, you know, it's quite scary to most scientists out there in the world. So so I think we can do it if we collaborate and and we get the right, uh, you know, brains around the table. You've got government support, but you need private sector in as well. You need the bigger players in the private sector to come in. And you need pe- people on the ground do- doing stuff at the, uh, you know, the sharp end. I'll just come back to my one point. And for me, it's about the power of demonstration. Let, you know, let's, I, I like this idea. Let's find one area. Let's find one region and really go at it and prove that you can, we can introduce these new models and these new services, blended finance into the ag value chains. And, and so if we can show it somewhere, then I think, then I think we'll, we'll get some more momentum behind it. So fabulous. I think, uh, I hope you guys are even more convinced than you were before you came that there are real solutions, but there are challenges. And that I think what we've seen here is, you know, what investors can do towards that. We have, you know, we recognize though that investors are not enough in, in this ecosystem and we'll need donors to step in and help, you know, set and pay for some of the collaboration required, some of the subsidies. We, we will also need governments to step in and use their power, whatever power, you know, the power that they do have. So I think I am leaving optimistic with a little bit more clarity about what we can do to move this agenda forward. Thank you so much for joining and a big hand for our- Join us next week for the final episode of the season. 
We share the conversation I had with T.S. Anil, global CEO of Monzo Bank. T.S. goes into his personal and professional journey, as well as his perspectives on building fintech for the future. 